0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. They're keeping Austin weird. The Democrats have descended upon South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. For years, it's been known as a music-focused festival, but now it's a key political battleground for 2020 hopefuls with Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, Beto O'Rourke, Howard Schultz, Julian Castro, Pete Buttigieg, John Delaney, and John Hickenlooper all speaking at the festival this weekend. For more on why the road to the White House apparently leads through Austin now, Leila Santiago is on the ground at South by Southwest. Leila, this festival has become a major campaign stop for Democrats this year. Uh, What'd you see today?
2: Well, listen, there are a lot of folks here that are talking about some of the big topics that you will see on the 2020 campaign. There are films and conversations being had about immigration, about health care, about the economy, about criminal justice reform. So you see a lot of candidates here hoping to tap into that conversation and the young and engaged audience that comes with it. And they're making some some big statements. You have Senator Elizabeth Warren really trying to differentiate herself from uh, from Bernie Sanders saying, I am not a Democratic Socialist, a big statement saying that today uh, to make her different in a very crowded field. And then you have those like Democrat uh, Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman who hasn't made an announcement yet, but really disappointed some people who were hoping that maybe he would say something here today at at a at a documentary called Running with Beto. Uh, he was specifically asked by someone in the audience, "When will you make an announcement about a presidential bid?" And he deflect. He decided to to, to not give a direct yes or no, but rather talk about some of the other local races and candidates in Texas that he wanted to highlight. So, yes, very much. You're seeing a lot of candidates here taking the opportunity to make big statements, differentiate themselves in a very crowded field. And take advantage of the audience that is here. Very young, very engaged, and very much educated on some of the key issues uh, that you'll see on the 2020 campaign. Leila,
1: thanks so much. The 2020 Democratic candidates will almost certainly have to answer questions about the latest controversy enveloping their party. Her name is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Amy Klobuchar, in fact, was asked about Omar's controversial remarks at South by Southwest today. She said she did not agree with them entirely. So despite passing a resolution this week meant to put her offensive remarks behind them, Democrats did anything but. The past few weeks gave Omar, Congress, and really all of us an opportunity to do a few important things. One, have a difficult conversation about the role Israel plays in U.S. politics. Two, discuss the particularly odious scourge of anti-Semitism in the United States, what it is and what it isn't. Three, take on substantive debates about actual policies involving Israel. Well, congratulations, America. We did none of the above. Despite saying that she wanted to have difficult conversations about Israel's influence, Ilhan Omar has done no such thing. In fact, in trafficking almost exclusively in patently anti-Semitic tropes about Jews, money, and dual allegiance, Omar steps all over her own stated mission. And despite repeated warnings from her Democratic and Jewish colleagues to be more careful with her language, she has only gone in the opposite direction. Likewise, Congress had the opportunity to denounce anti-Semitism, a very specific, very odious problem for the far right and the far left, and Democrats decided to dodge that opportunity, unapologetically dressing up a resolution as anti-hate, and insulating the person it was meant to discourage. Republicans who voted no on that discreet basis may have a point, but they only looked partisan in the process. And finally, there have been practically zero substantive debates about actual policies involving Israel. Policies ranging from U.S. aid to Israel to the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. That's gotten little, if any, attention at all in all of this. And including from the person who once again says she wants to have the difficult conversations. In fact, when asked about her support of an actual policy, here's what Ilhan Omar had to say.
3: Why do you support BDS? Why do you support BDS? All right, thanks.
1: Here's the deal. It is not anti-Semitic to question or criticize our relationship with Israel, nor is it anti-Semitic to question or criticize Israeli politics. Israeli Jews do this every day. That is a straw man argument. But when Ilhan Omar, a U.S. congresswoman, uses centuries-old anti-Semitic tropes again and again as a pretense for having difficult conversations and then refuses to have those conversations, there's no question as to what is going on here. And Democrats, shame on you. Shame on you for protecting her. It should not be this hard to swiftly condemn both the language and the person who chooses repeatedly to use it. And don't bother tweeting at me, I'll save you the time. Yes, I also denounced Republicans' protection of the human cancer, Steve King. Okay, joining me now to discuss uh, all of this is Anti-Defamation League CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt. I'm so glad you're here, Jonathan. Uh, Look, you and I have talked about this before. I welcome conversations about Israel. I know you do too. Why do you think it's so hard though for this Congresswoman to initiate those important conversations without using anti-semitic language
4: well thank you for having me S.C., and i must mm-hmm. say it's somewhat inexplicable to me as you stated at the top of the broadcast we have tough conversations about israel all the time this wasn't about israel the charge that jews somehow have an allegiance to a foreign power is deeply anti-semitic it predates the state of israel it's been used to slander and marginalize and discriminate against Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we should keep in mind that not only is it anti-Semitic, it's Mm, mm anti-American. This charge was used to discriminate against German-Americans during the First World War. It was used to intern Japanese-Americans during the Second World War. It was used to marginalize John F. Kennedy when as an American Catholic, he ran Mm -hmm. for president in 1960. So this isn't new, it is ugly, it is tired, and it doesn't belong.
1: Jonathan, I want to ask you about BDS, um, because it's it's a movement that is steeped in anti-Semitism. Its Mm -hmm. goal is to delegitimize and villainize the Jewish state. Explain why people should be as concerned about this policy, which Omar supports, as they are about her
4: tweets. Well, yes, the BDS movement... This idea of boycotting Israel, it's a form of delegitimization. And delegitimization has been used by anti-Semites to discriminate against the Jewish people, literally for thousands of years, questioning their legitimacy. Now, instead of the Jewish people, this policy seeks to question the Jewish state. But it's the same old charges, as you said, that people behind it have deeply anti-Semitic motives. They seek to deny solely the Jewish people the right of self-determination. And by the way, it doesn't seek a two-state solution. It doesn't right. seek Palestinian-Israeli engagement. It spends its time demonizing the, the single Jewish state in the world. We find that deeply yeah. problematic.
1: And, and to, to, be, to be fair, she says she does support a two-state solution, so that doesn't really square with her support of BDS. But again, it, yeah, we haven't been able to talk to her about it. I don't really know what she thinks of that. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the resolution in Congress denouncing well, basically— All hatred is that is that the proper response? Less than five months after a horrific shooting in an American synagogue.
4: Yeah, the the most violent anti-Semitic attack in American history. I guess I have a few thoughts on it. So first of all, there was some good in the resolution. It's good that it called out anti-Semitism. It's good that it specifically called out this smear of dual loyalty. Those Mm -hmm. things were important and a good step. But here's the bad news. Number one, it shouldn't have taken this long. We shouldn't debate calling out bigotry when it happens. Congress should be quick and clear and call it out. And secondly, this debate, what is there to debate about? Look, at the ADL, we fight all forms of hate. We've been doing it for over 100 years. I've defended Congresswoman Omar when she was smeared by that poster in West Virginia last weekend. I've stood up for Syrian refugees. I've called out this whole idea of a Muslim registry. But the notion that we have to somehow take an issue, which was about anti-Semitism this week, and sort of all lives matter it, we can do better than that. Congress yep. can do better than that.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate being here. Thank you. Uh, now I want to bring in our panel, senior columnist of The Daily Beast Matt Lewis and Democratic strategist Maria Cardona. Matt, um, let's get the elephant out of the room. President Trump has weighed in on this. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the Democrats have become an anti-Israel party. They've become an anti-Jewish party. And that's too bad.
1: I mean, that is both demonstrably, provably false um, and not probably the best the best tack to take here.
5: Well, look, I think Donald Trump should stay out of this. Mm. But I think there is something to be said for that. This being sadly like a canary in a coal mine and maybe the way the Democratic Party is headed toward a Corbynite labor party yeah. in, in
1: britain i've heard this comparison and the, yeah.
5: the reason is that i mean look nancy pelosi is the speaker of the house but nancy pelosi's refusing to call this out specifically there's a resolution that passed that didn't specifically condemn yeah. representative omar basically what we have is omar using these very old anti-semitic tropes being defended by aoc mm-hmm. um and guess who's the future of the and party? Others. It's mm-hmm. not Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Um, AOC has more Twitter followers than Nancy Pelosi. Well, this is the this is the wave. That's and, my And control.
1: Maria Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. has defended Omar. She mm-hmm. she chose an interesting defense yesterday saying um that Omar has a different experience mm-hmm. in the use of words. Mm-hmm. Um I would just add she I mean over and over and over again despite being yeah. told to choose better words, should she maybe be on a different committee than than foreign affairs? Well, here's what I'll say.
6: Let's step back, because everybody keeps saying that the Democrats let her off easy. They didn't. She was was given very tough talking twos, and publicly, Nancy Pelosi publicly said, she is still talking. uh, uh, Well, but Mm -hmm. she apologized twice, okay? Now, the reason why I think it's so ill-advised for the Mm -hmm. president to jump in on this is he is somebody, as you know, who has used anti-Semitic tropes in his tweets. Yes, he was the one that in Charlotte, Charlottesville said there are good people Agreed, on both and sides. We remember all of right, that. exactly. Absolutely. But where is the Republican outrage on that now? Wait a I was- second.
5: We've spent three <laughs> years on CNN talking uh, pretty extensively mm-hmm. about Donald Trump's failings. And you
6: have a lot of us have. but Republicans in Congress don't do it. Well, here's, no, there, here's a what like. against, there was
5: no a resolution against there was a resolution against here's what, what I don't like. After All of how
1: I many
6: did. years, though? But no Matt. offense to Maria. I understand.
1: Yeah, yeah. But now we've hijacked a conversation to talk about Trump. I yeah. want to talk about what she okay, said. So it's deeply offensive. To, yes, yes, she's apologized. It is she deeply keeps offensive, saying it. She keeps doing it. And she and needs her ways. Democrats have not have not effectively Put this behind them. Dealt with it. I'm. I'm not convinced she's not going to say something like this again. Well,
6: and this is something that she is going to be held to account, right? By she, whom? Well, when? if she Where? Keep, if she keeps saying it, she will have to be held to account by her own party. Because Wait. I don't think Democrats. Wasn't this that opportunity? I, well, because she j- had just said it, and there are and there are things that she did say that I think merit. To your point at the very beginning, yeah, yeah. a much broader conversation. Yes. Paul Waldman had a terrific Washington Post article. Paul Waldman who is Jewish yeah. and grew up in a Zionist household. Yeah. He said she has some very good arguments, very um, uh, arguments that we need Here's to discuss. Here's the problem. But the yes, scourge, she stepped on those semitism, arguments, but they are
1: valid arguments. She's engaged in... Antisemitism is a door. And all it requires is a crack yeah. for anti-Semitism to be fomented. And this crack... That she opened the door mm-hmm. and that Democrats seem perfectly fine to leave open. But th- I, don't, I think, that. they are not wash for- her language and normalize if they were, if they it were, is hideous. If they they were, should kick her off the Foreign Affairs Committee okay, if they were serious. If they were, if they,
5: they were, should were, kick her off the Foreign if Affairs if they okay Committee. To, they should have about a resolution that's specifically. Wait, 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 she's wait, time, engaged time. in three very, very explicit anti Semitic tropes that are go back forever, right? One of them is. That uh, that Israel has hypnotized the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One she
6: of them, apologized for oh, that. She's apologized she three times and she keeps okay. doing it. Well, you know what? When people
5: tell you who they she are, believe them. them. She needs when people to learn you, from that, Matt.
6: And what I'm saying is they have cut her some slack. They have not let her off the hook because they have publicly reprimanded her, and they have publicly said that what she Nancy said Pelosi's is Nancy Pelosi's apologizing
5: for her. Pa- Nancy, Nancy Pelosi's Pelosi, saying she's not, me, she doesn't Matt, understand let me, let me, it. Let
6: me before- Nancy, hang on. Nancy Pelosi has publicly reprimanded her and has said that what she is saying is inappropriate. If not, let we would not have
1: had this resolution. Uh, another, another way of pointing out, illustrating how bad a look this is. Um, uh, Congressman Clyburn said that Ilhan Omar's... Uh, relationship with um, she was a refugee and Mm -hmm. he was talking about how that personally impacted her, of course. Mm -hmm. He intimated that that is somehow more legitimate than someone's relationship with the Holocaust a generation or two ago. This is absolutely obscene, an obscene way to apologize for what is patently anti-Semitic remarks. And she does not seem to get it. Democrats have absolutely said
6: that her remarks are patently anti-Semitic. But what I also want to point out is that this resolution did not water down the anti-Semitic piece of it. It actually beefed it up by including all kinds of hatred that, by the way, you know, right. I, does, I like you know, I I am a part of that every day as a Latina. It, that it, doesn't it. it. it, it does undermine it. I think it absolutely strengthens it. And by the way, the fact that 23 Republicans voted Who's against
5: it—that
1: is, 23 All Republicans right. apparently, because go. they know it's not sham. against hate. That's wow. an excuse, Matt. It's an <laughs> important conversation. It is I'm an glad important conversation. We're both here to have it. I really do appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have it again. Unfortunately, the president may get his first taste of legislative pushback from the Republican-controlled Senate next week over his national emergency declaration. I'll speak to a member of the Senate about that in a bit, but first, let's get some perspective from someone who's just returned from serving at the southern border. Congressman Adam Kinzinger joins me next.
4: Well, I think that it's going very well at the border. We're doing a great job. We're apprehending record numbers of people, 75,000 over the last short period of time. That's a lot of work, and with a wall, we wouldn't have to do it. No, I think we're doing fine in Congress. They understand it's an emergency.
1: President Trump, on his way to tour the tornado devastation in Alabama on Friday, expressed very little concern about the grumbling going on in Congress over his national emergency declaration. The Senate is set to vote next week on a rebuke of that measure, viewed as a dangerous precedent by many, some even in his own party, But as the politics play out in D.C., the situation at the border is inarguably not good. According to the administration, more than 66,000 people were apprehended at the border last month, the highest number recorded in almost a decade, most of them families who are unaccompanied children. Still historically low? Yes. But overwhelming and a strain on the tools we have to handle it? Yes. The border's been so politicized, it's hard to know exactly what's really happening there. Let me bring in Illinois Representative Adam Kinzinger, who has just returned from the border. Um, Congressman, you were deployed to the border with your Air National Guard unit. Um, I want to know what you saw there.
7: So this was my fourth time doing uh, this kind of a deployment. The three prior times were in Texas under President Obama. So I think what's important to note is as politicized as this is getting, like you said, in your lead in, yeah. this is not only the president, President Trump that is actually sending the guard to the border and recognizes the problem. So what yeah. I saw was was actually very eye opening. It's very rugged terrain in Arizona. I was based out of Tucson, but flew all over Arizona on the border. And there was a lot of drugs. You'd see people. So I, I fly an intelligence aircraft so we can see things. You'd see people drop bundles, which a good number of those were actually drugs. You would see people abandon a group when they got spooked. Those were coyotes, the guides from the cartel, leading people in. And when they abandoned them, they'd leave a group literally in the middle of nowhere, and they have no idea where they are. So mm-hmm. it's a very bad situation. And I think while we can all disagree on whether we should build a wall, etc., where I get a little worried now is I, I'm hearing people disagree with that there's even a problem on the border. That used right. to not be something that we all disagreed on.
1: Can I just ask in those times that you were there before, how, how did this trip compare? Did, was, it, was it different? Was it worse, uh, better? I, I, I think it's
7: worse. So I, I compare it this way. Texas is very different terrain than Arizona. So it's kind okay. of a little apples and oranges in terms of what you see. When I was in Texas, there was a lot of you know, people seeking a better way of life coming over. So you'd see migrant groups, in essence, try to come over the border illegally. And and Border Patrol then was overwhelmed too. In Arizona, there is that. But what I saw a lot more of is cartel counterintelligence operations. For instance, Mm. people would sit on hills and mountains and scout out where the border patrol is. They do things to draw border patrol to one area so that they could bring a group in in another area. They'd leave one or two people behind. So border patrol would be tied up arresting them. So between the drugs and the human trafficking, the two ways that cartels make money,
1: uh, it's pretty bad. So then do you support the president's use of a national emergency uh, to deal with this? I actually do. I went down
7: neutral purposefully because I said I wanted to see it from this, from the operations perspective. Yeah. And you know me, I'm not afraid to say if he's wrong, yeah. uh, but I think he's right in this case because this is not a change to a law. Some of the pres- President Obama's executive order actually changed policy. This is a change to where money's going, and I looked at this and said, not because of the immigration component, but because of the drug and human trafficking component, the two biggest scourges that this country faces, and frankly the world faces right now, it rises to the level of national emergency.
1: You uh, you met with the president this week. I saw pictures of you in the Oval Office. What did you guys talk about?
7: We talked about this. I wanted to share with him my experience on the border. Um, and he was very interested in it. You know, the president and even members of Congress, they can go to a border, you know, with a windbreaker and get a picture. Right. They're ultimately told what the leadership wants them to be told. But to actually be involved in the operations was very unique. So I shared that experience with him. And I, he, he was uh, very interested to hear it. And it just reaffirmed his belief and my belief that this is a national emergency.
1: Well, as always, thank you for your service, and thank you for bringing all of that uh, detail back to our show. I appreciate it.
7: You bet. Take care.
1: Next, I'll ask a Democratic senator if this border problem is worthy of a wall, and a little later, a debate about a debate. We'll talk about the president's favorite news channel, its alarming influence, and being snubbed by the DNC. I just finished discussing the politicization of the border situation. And in a few minutes, I'll speak to a senator about the upcoming vote against Trump's border emergency. But first, there's another troubling layer to the border conversation, and it involves the First Amendment. Homeland Security has launched an internal investigation into customs and border protection over allegations they're tracking journalists and activists at the border. Earlier this week, San Diego's NBC7 reported it had obtained documents showing that CBP officials kept a list of people to pull aside for further screening when crossing the U.S.-Mexico border because they may have had information related to the migrant caravan and incidents at the border. People with information, yeah, journalists would fit the bill. CBP says it does not target journalists for inspection based on their occupation or their reporting, so that's reassuring. We'll have to see where that goes. We'll be back in two minutes. In the red file tonight, the Senate votes this week on a resolution to block Trump's national emergency declaration to get money for his border wall. These are the Republican senators who announced they are breaking rank and will be voting for the resolution. There could be others which would force a presidential veto. In true Trump fashion, the president sent out a tweet imploring Republicans to stick together in all caps, stay united. But behind the scenes, the White House is fighting back. Officials are warning there will be retribution against anyone who doesn't get in line, including potential primary fights. So when the president almost certainly vetoes the resolution, what then? Joining me now, Democratic Senator from Maryland, Ben Cardin. Um, Senator, welcome. What are you expecting to happen with the resolution this week?
8: Well, see, it's first good to be with you. I expect the Senate will follow the House and pass a resolution disapproving the president's use of this emergency power. Mm. we will do it for several reasons. We could argue the merits of, of, the, of the, what the president's doing. We could argue the fact that there is no emergency. This is a circumstance that's been building for a long time. Uh, but the the real reason is that this is usurping the power of Congress. Congress mm. has already acted on this issue specifically. Right. And the president's trying to take over the, the, the legislative branch of government. And uh, I think that uh, the... Uh, majority of senators will recognize that and will vote uh, to override the president's emergency declaration. So,
1: if he vetoes, then what's what's the the next plan from from Democrats?
8: Well, I'm disappointed if we don't have the votes to override the the veto. I, I think this mm. is a pretty clear situation of abuse of, of executive power. Uh, I do think though the courts will weigh in. Uh, this uh, we, the mm, the courts okay. I believe will rule that the president cannot do this. Yeah.
1: Uh, I don't know if you heard, but in the previous segment, I just talked to Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He was deployed to the border as part of the Air National Guard, and he says what he saw there firsthand really assured him that a border wall is necessary. Mm. Are Democrats ignoring very real problems there for the sake of politics?
8: No, not at all. I heard that segment. And I disagree with his conclusion. I do believe that we have to do more to to secure our borders. I believe in that. I think we have to use technology. Uh, Most of the drugs we're talking about come in through commerce, Uh, the trafficking issues. Many come right Mm -hmm. across the border uh, to, to turn themselves into our border security people to seek asylum. So I disagree with his conclusion. But I do agree that we have to do more to protect our border. And in fact, we did that in the appropriations bill. We provided additional billions of dollars in order to protect our border.
1: Right. Um, As you know, immigration was a a very advantageous issue for Trump in 2016. Are some Democrats, though, by, by backing things like abolishing ICE, for example, are they swinging too far in the other direction?
8: Well, I don't believe in abolishing ICE. I think we need to have border security people, so I disagree with that view. But I do believe we have to do more to protect our border, and, and Democrats have supported that. Look at our uh, actions on the appropriation bills. We, we've done that. We've also supported comprehensive immigration reform because we know our immigration laws need to be changed. Yeah. And it's the Republicans who have blocked the ability to reform our immigration system. And President Trump has really refused to take leadership in reforming our immigration system.
1: So then what would you say to, for example, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or some of the Democratic candidates running to be president who support things like abolishing ICE?
8: You need to have people on the border. We need to have law enforcement on the border. We need to know who's coming into this country. We want people to come into this country, We want to know who they are. We want to have a lawful way. We recognize our system needs to be reformed and let's reform that system. Let's lead the, our, our hemisphere on uh, humanitarian issues. We, we know we have yeah. a crisis in Venezuela, and we're, we're pleased that Colombia has opened its border in order to protect people's lives. America needs to be, uh, have a pro- policy that we let people legitimately seek asylum. So we yeah. need to have the right laws, but we need people on the border to enforce those laws.
1: Senator, thanks for coming on and previewing what will be a pretty important week. For you in the senate i appreciate it
8: good to be it's, it's good to be with you thanks
1: former fox news chief bill shine resigned as the president's sixth comms director but will that change anything white house communications director bill shine resigned on friday after eight months in the role he was the sixth person to occupy that post he's not going too far though he'll now serve as senior advisor to trump's reelection campaign The move comes days after The New Yorker published a lengthy article on the stunning overlap between the White House and Fox News. According to that piece, here's Shine's White House origin story. Hannity became a matchmaker, arranging a dinner with the president at the White House, attended by himself, Shine and Scaramucci, Anthony Scaramucci. Hannity proposed Shine as a top communications official or even as a deputy chief of staff. A year later, Shine was both. The story only confirmed for many that Fox is nothing more than state media, Trump TV. Democrats apparently agree. DNC chair Tom Perez announced that the party would not be holding a primary debate on Fox News. Now, the DNC hasn't held a primary debate on Fox News for 15 years, but the reason this time is new. While Fox News' actual reporters, Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, are urging the party to reconsider, Elizabeth Warren, who would be in these debates, presumably totally agrees with the move.
0: When more and more keeps coming out about how Fox News was just operating as an arm of the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration, I understand why it is that the Democratic Party would say, we're just not going to be a part of that. Hmm.
1: Not everyone agrees, though. Joining me to discuss all of this are CNN chief media correspondent Brian Stelter and CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, Brian, let's start with Bill Shine. What do you know about what happened there?
3: Well, this was an impossible job. Uh, yeah. We say it every time that the president thinks he's his own best communications director. Yeah. And I wonder if he'll even bother filling the job now. Really? Uh, even hiring another communications director. Why bother? Mm-hmm. I thought Maggie Haberman put it best. She said everyone's first day at the White House is their best day. <laughs> their best day with Trump. It's all... Gonna to start to go downhill from there. Yeah, uh, for some people it takes longer than others. For the mooch, it only took ten days. Yeah, uh, for Bill Shine, he lasted the better part of a year. Uh, but you end up uh, disappointing the president, uh, getting you know, having the president frustrated by you. Yeah, there's a lot of these reports that say that Shine was not living up to Trump's expectations. Right. But of course, Trump's real problem is not communications. It's not right. Bill Shine's fault that the president is embroiled in scandal. Yeah,
1: Maggie Haberman uh, put it well. Paul Begala, my friend, also put it well. Uh, the Titanic didn't have a comms problem; it had an iceberg problem. <laughs> an iceberg problem. Uh, okay, so now let's talk about the Fox debates issue. Bukhari, on the one hand, I think it makes sense. Why give Fox the legitimacy? But does this decision make Democrats look weak?
9: Not at all. And I mean, I, I think you stated at first in your preface that uh, RNC or excuse me, uh, Fox News hasn't had a DNC debate. Uh, for a number of years. If you go yeah. back to 2016, I believe they did host a town hall meeting, but that was it. And the flip side of this is that the RNC did not grant MSNBC a debate as well. And so what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Sure. But yeah. even more importantly, I would actually encourage my friends like Kamala Harris, my friends like Pete Buttigieg and others to actually go sit down with Chris Matthews and sit down with Brett Baer, maybe in some one-on-one Chris interviews. Wallace. But yeah. Chris Wallace, excuse me. Uh-huh. But dare not give uh, Fox News, which was an arm of Trump TV, uh, <laughs> I called him Trump TV, which was an arm of the Trump campaign, uh, uh, more, add more fuel to the fire. I just think that's wholly inappropriate.
1: Well, uh, Brian, Chris Wallace argues that this will give Trump a precedent to exclude certain networks during the general election debates.
3: I don't think the president will need any excuse or reason or, or rationalization yeah. if he chooses to do that. And by the way, I don't think he will. He wants to be on television. The president wants to be in debates against whoever's up against yeah. him in the Democratic uh, um, uh, in the, after the primaries. Uh, I think the argument we've heard from Fox is that uh, they hope the DNC will change its mind. I'm surprised Fox even ever thought it was in the running. Because huh. yes, there are journalists at Fox News, but the opinion arm is what dominates the Fox right. News narrative. The primetime shows are so ugly toward Democrats. I don't understand why the DNC would ever think about going on Fox in the first place for a debate. I understand the idea about interviews, but why would you end up, why would you over to the enemy camp if you're the Democrats? And the same is true for the Republicans. You wouldn't have an MSNBC primetime debate with the GOP party. Well, let me just just
1: put put a different spin on this. Um, You and I have talked a lot about media solidarity, networks sticking together. Right. I almost wondered if this would be a media moment where other networks, maybe even ours, Would say, all right, if you're not going to go on Fox News, Mm. we're not going to have the Dem debates either. I mean, is that sort of a little maybe too Aaron Sorkin version of,
3: <laughs> of you know, how, how this would go? Well, we've seen great moments of solidarity. Uh, for example, when uh, CNN was booted, when Acosta was booted yes. from the White House uh, lawn. From Fox. Uh, in that case, Fox supported. Yeah. Uh, now, I think if the shoe were on the other foot and a Fox News reporter were banned from the White House, CNN would absolutely stand up for that reporter. Right. Uh, when Tucker Carlson's home was, uh, was uh, uh, defaced yeah. by some protesters, I spoke out and supported Tucker yeah. and said it was inappropriate. Those moments, I think, call for solidarity. Uh, What the Democratic National Committee does is not, I don't think, related to us. I think that's in the Democrats' court. Go ahead, Bahari.
9: No, I was also going to say every example you gave, minus Tucker, has to deal with journalism. And I think that you have to have solidarity when it comes through to, to journalists sticking together. What uh, Brian pointed out eloquently as we started was the fact that uh, primetime television over at Fox News is opinion-driven. Um, yeah. Sean Hannity is not, a, is not a journalist by any stretch. In fact, he states that. He gives his opinion. That's what he is. And so I don't think that there uh, is any reason for— uh, anyone to come together and say kumbaya because well, we appreciate just, yeah. your awful opinion. Let
1: me just very quickly, Bakari, ask you, you know, how can Democrats, though, make an argument that they want to reach new voters, maybe even some disaffected Trump voters, if they decide not to talk to any of them where they're at?
9: No, we, we can talk to them where they are. Like I said, you can go on Chris Matthews, who's one of the best mm. uh, uh, who's one of the best uh, <laughs> journalists we have. Chris Wallace. I keep calling him Chris Matthews. You can I go on Chris Wallace if you if you so choose. You can go on Brett Baer, who is awesome if you so yeah. choose and, and be able to reach those voters. But you don't have to go into the lion's den. I think Tom Perez made a made an awesome decision. Uh, most times in the past years, we haven't even given a reason why we haven't gone on Fox <laughs> right. News, but at <laughs> no, least he actually at least he actually gave a reason this time. And and it's great journalism that gave him uh, this new reasoning. So uh, Chris Matthews and Chris Wallace both deserve a shout out. But if you're going (laughs) on Fox News, please choose Chris Wallace. There we go.
1: Bakari, Brian, (laughs) thanks. Good conversation. I appreciate it. Be sure to watch Brian tomorrow at 11 a.m. on Reliable Sources. He'll speak to the author of that New Yorker article, Jane Mayer. We'll be right back. Remember this old chestnut, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation. Ohio's long been a bellwether state in American presidential politics. It was not always thus. Believe it or not, Maine held that distinction from 1832 to 1932. And others have held it since. But Ohio might be inching away from swing state status to Republican stronghold. At least it seems like that's what Democrats think. This week, a very influential Democratic super PAC, Priorities USA, released its 2020 targeting, and Ohio was downgraded to GOP Watch. Check this out. Phase one of their priority investment and phase two of their priority investment, Ohio is conspicuously absent. A spokesman for the Super PAC tells Cleveland.com, quote, It's not in our initial spending plans. It is in the states to watch and see if investment is worth making. Also this week, working class champion Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown announced he would not be seeking the Democratic nomination for president. He would have been the most prominent candidate from the Rust Belt in the Democratic primary. Hmm, What's going on here? Joining me now, CNN politics senior writer and analyst Harry Enten. So Harry, the last president to win without Ohio was JFK. Is Ohio no longer a bellwether?
10: I don't think it actually is. I mean, look at the midterm results, right? Governor's race. Mike DeWine, Republican, easily wins. Look yep. at the House races. Democrats didn't pick up a single House seat there. And if you take the cumulative House vote, Republicans won it by four points. That's very different than Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, these rest of these Midwest states that are traditionally swing states. They look like they're holding on to that status, yeah. but Ohio, not really.
1: Um, so do you think Priorities USA is sort of hinting at something here that Ohio is now Trump country?
10: I I think that they are. I I Hmm. think they recognize if they're going to get to 270 electoral votes, there are better pathways to get there first than going through Ohio. And, I mean, if you look at the 2016 results, you saw President Trump winning there by eight points. I don't think it's going to be that much different in 2020. I mean, it could be Hmm. a closer race, but there are other states that are going to get the Democratic candidate to that 270 threshold first if they do get there. I'm just
1: remembering, though, Hillary Clinton was criticized, I think, rightly and mercilessly. For not going to states like Wisconsin enough, for example. Can Democrats really afford to take any state
10: off the table? I mean, I, w- I wouldn't take states off the table, yeah. right? But I, yeah. I'm telling you from a mathematical electoral map point of view. Better places to put are, your money. There are better places mm. to put your money than Ohio. But obviously you want to invest there. I mean, you know, there are candidates who could potentially get them to 270 by winning Ohio. But yeah. it's probably not the first that I'd be looking Well, at.
1: I think about someone like Joe Biden. If Joe Biden gets in, I think he could, you know, he has a shot at winning a state like Ohio. If he doesn't, and now with Sherrod Brown not running, who really speaks to those voters from the Democratic Party?
10: I think really the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, right? That's another Midwestern state. That's not the same as Ohio, right? It's not rest belt in the same. It's a little different, but, you know, she's one. Huge margins in Minnesota. She won by 24 points last time. She won by over 30 points in 2012. She won by 20 points in 2006. She's the type of candidate, I think, if it's not Biden, who could put Ohio in play?
1: Yeah, it's just funny because I know she's sort of positioning herself as a moderate. But I just don't think anyone speaks Rust Belt better than Joe Biden.
10: I, I think that's probably I, I think that's probably right. You know, Scranton, yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah, that kind Uncle of old Joe. Uncle Joe. But we'll see what happens. Right. I mean, states move. I mean, remember, Hillary Clinton won the Ohio primary in 2008 and everyone yeah. thought, hey, she is the candidate who could speak to Ohio. Look what happened eight years later. It turns out she couldn't talk to Ohio too well.
1: So interesting. Thank you so much Thank for you. Uh, joining me and talking through it. Thank you. Um, appreciate all of that insight. Up next, Make sure you guys stick around for Van Jones. New generation of congressional Democrats is making waves in Washington. Van goes head to head with five of the most interesting among them. They talk presidential oversight, the direction of their party heading into 2020, and where they're hoping to make a change. You don't want to miss that. Stay put. It's next.